surveillancing remains one of the largest areas of legal practice and not surprisingly, the area where the highest number of professional indemnity insurance claims occur. In this program, Janice Purvis, Solicitor and Manager of Practice Support Services at Law Cover, and Mike Devitt, Solicitor and Accredited Specialist in Property Law, discuss some of the current risk issues in conveyancing and how recent developments may impact your everyday practice, how to recognise this risk and what you can do to manage it. Thank you for coming up from the gong today, Mike. Very much appreciate you assisting the profession this way for Law Cover. It's indeed a pleasure, Janice. Fantastic. We're talking about conveyancing today, which is the lifeblood of um, many practitioners, especially sole practitioners. And there have been new issues arising with respect to the conveyancing claims. One, conveyancing claims have always been the biggest area of claim. However, now it's increased. In fact, it's increased from about 21%. We're now up to about 28% of claims. And it's also the highest area of costs for claims, actually about 42% of costs. So it really is changing. I'll mention the elephant in the room first, which is PEXA, of course. People will probably naturally say, oh, it's all because of PEXA and it's all because of electronic conveyancing. I have to burst that bubble because it actually isn't. I know the PEXA claims have hit the headlines. No doubt you've read them, Mike. Yes, indeed. In fact, there was a very emotive headline recently involving a celebrity. The headline reads, Master Chef Finalist Caught in Conveyancing Hacker Attack. Well, actually, it's a very accurate um, description because while people said, oh, it's dreadful, it's a PEXA platform, it's all this electronic platform, it actually wasn't. It was a hack. And it was a hack of the solicitor's email and not of the actual electronic platform. Yes, I understand that to be the case. It was in Victoria, I think. Yes. And the hacking took place with the conveyancer rather than the PEXA platform, as I understand it. And we have certainly found that in, in other um, instances that we've been notified of. And also, if you look at the, um, the latest news from the Law Society of New South Wales. They also, the scams that are taking place, in particular in conveyances and some in wills and estates, are the email hackings. And I suppose probably the risk message is, while emails grew up as a very casual language, it's now the primary way people do business today. Yes, that's right, Janice. And you just cannot afford to have um, a Hotmail address, a Gmail address. You've got to have a proper business email address with, with all the security surrounding it. Yes. I think the world has changed exponentially in terms of criminal activity. Once upon a time, any self-respecting criminal who wanted a large amount of money would burst into a bank, <laughs> having donned a balaclava with a sawn-off shoddy. These days, particularly in the country, they'd be hard-pressed to find a bank uh, that's open where there's some physical presence. But what we have now, as you've alluded to, is cybercrime, which is the use of technology to commit criminal acts. And I think law firms are very vulnerable because not only is it about money, 
and trust accounts, law firms have a lot of sensitive information in their files. That information can be worth a lot of money. And I think what's happened with uh, the PEXA experience recently is that it's alerted practitioners to how vulnerable a system can be. I don't pretend to be tech savvy, but the experts say that you should be very careful, get the best IT um, assistance that you can possibly afford. And particularly if there are updates to install the update quickly so that there's no vulnerable period where information and accounts can be accessed. There was a recent case a couple of days ago in Singapore where by hacking one solitary computer, they, the criminals got the information, health records of 1.5 million people, which is one quarter the population of Singapore. I think lawyers have to appreciate that we live in a very dangerous world as far as that is concerned. You cannot be too careful. Absolutely. Another issue which has occurred just recently in the last nine months, the legislation changed and instead of the usual five prescribed documents that were required for the contract, it then required three three more, I believe. And when legislation changes, unfortunately, there's often um, people who aren't keeping up to date. And we've had a number of notifications where contracts have been rescinded because of the lack of the prescribed documents. I think that's a very important issue, Janice. One thing that the new regulation addressed was the prosaic matter of sewer diagrams. In some cases... <laughs> very now, important sewer very diagrams. Very important. And the location of a sewer can be very relevant and salient in terms of future development of a property. However, in many cases now, it is necessary to attach effectively two sewer yeah. diagrams to a contract. If you don't... If you fail to do that, what you are doing as vendor is giving your purchaser a free kick Absolutely. for 14 days after the exchange of contracts to rescind the contract for no reason whatsoever and to get their deposit back and everyone is back to square one. Where it is very dangerous if you don't comply with the requirements and you give a purchaser that free kick, it's often the case that there's a chain reaction of matters, that the vendor has contracted to sell and at the same time the vendor has contracted to purchase. And what can happen, of course, is that at five to five on the 14th day, the purchaser can legally rescind and the vendor is still liable to buy their property down the chain. The danger is, of course, that a devious and calculating purchaser can rescind the contract and then go back to the vendor and negotiate another contract with, would you believe, a lower price. And that's where the claims do come in. The majority of claims are surrounding, look, 
I sold it for, you know, $1 million. Because the contract was rescinded, the market went down, I could only resell it for $800,000, therefore my loss is $200,000 and the, the claim. And we don't have much help with the defence because if you don't put the prescribed documents in. So it's, it's, it's a risk management message, it's a reminder. And these days it's very, very good. Lots of organisations send you updates on what's happening in respect of it. But we certainly had a spike at the when the legislation was changed and I'm hoping now that it's become a more regular thing that um, that spike certainly goes away. I can appreciate that. In a rising market, of course, if the vendor has the contract rescinded, they can turn around and resell at a higher price. But in the current climate where the market or parts of the market, I should say, are softening, it can be extraordinarily dangerous mm. for the vendor. And once upon a time, you could go and get some bridging finance from a bank or another lender. I think it's notorious that at the moment, because of certain other events, lenders are tightening up Absolutely, their yeah. lending criteria. And it is very hard to get an interest-only loan. It's very hard to get bridging finance. And the banks these days are asking for all sorts of information, even to the extent of how much do you spend each week on French champagne mm. before they approve the loan. I think what should happen is the lawyers should have a checking procedure in place where another brain, another person another set of eyes looks at the contract and vets it before it goes out the door. It takes another 10 minutes and that could save, as you can appreciate, an enormous amount of cost and grief. And look, there's a lot of sole practitioners out there who don't have the luxury of a second set of eyes, as we know. But I often say that, you know, even if you put the together one day, leave it for 24 hours and go and check it the next day. Because as you know, when we're checking things like everybody else, you tend to see what you think is there exactly. and not what is actually there. I think that's a good um, idea. Do it the next morning. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a bit of time in between. Mm. Another issue which um, has risen its ugly head, which is becoming a big thing now, of course, is the verification of identity of your clients or the VOI which has certainly come into place with the PEXA platform as well, but it is such an important issue now. Gone are the days, I think, where somebody can walk into a solicitor's office and say, I'm Joe Blow, here's my driver's licence, and you can rely on that. The verification of identity procedure, I think, has got to be strict. And while it may only be mandatory for conveyancing matters... These days, I think you've got to do it for every client. What's, what's your view? I mean, you're, you're actually out there in the I, I'd agree in the with thick that, of Janice. it. Without overstating it, I think identity fraud is becoming, it's bordering on rampant. Mm. And it is an easy way, inverted commas, for the bad guys to get access to large amounts of money quickly. Mm. And I think the onus has now shifted to the lawyer, but really it should have been there all along. So why Well, that's a good point because, I mean, one thing we've got, to, we're talking about verification of identity and we're talking very much about email um, today. 
we've got to realise that fraud has occurred since time immemorial. Yes. And before we had computers, I mean, the fraud was paper-based. There are no, I, I think it's... I don't know if there are more fraudsters around today. I mean, once I used to walk into a solicitor's office with a fake title deed and things like that. Yes. Now it's just become a, they're using the electronic platform. So, I mean, fraud has always been around, but we do have the tools to hopefully prevent it because solicitors are used as a gateway to fraud. I mean, there's no two ways about it. That's right. And once upon a time, fraud, of course, was perpetrator with a cool pen. Now it's the click of a mouse (laughs) and it's all so quick. Absolutely. And one of my favourite ones is the Anstor case. Do you want to tell us about the Anstor case? Yes. uh, Favourite's an interesting word. (laughs) (laughs) This case actually would do uh, credit to a John Grisham novel. You basically couldn't make it up. But cutting to the chase, it involved a lady who was living in South Africa. She'd been living there for a long time. She had an investment property which she'd paid off in the ACT. All her communication with her friendly real estate agent was by email and the agent would frequently contact her. Then there was a flurry of emails to say there's been some problem, I've changed my email, it's been compromised, this is the new email. In fact, it was a fraudster domiciled, it appears, in South Africa. The first email in the chain was an instruction to the agent to sell the property. Sell it basically for whatever you can. Then there was another email to a firm of lawyers in the ACT retaining that firm to act on the sale. Interesting to note that the lawyers managed to convince a large bank who held the title deed in inverted commas safe custody to make the title deed available to them. The transaction went through conducted completely by email There was forgery of signatures on a contract and a transfer. The matter settled. The entire proceeds of sale were deposited as per email instructions to a bank account in Jakarta. Notwithstanding the fact that the Federal Police threw all sorts of resources at this matter, they couldn't identify the perpetrators and the money was never recovered. It was something from memory, $460,000, The case is basically closed as far as the Federal Police are concerned, and it appears to be part of some international network. This sort of thing has happened before, specifically in Western Australia. The... A lesson to be taken from the case was the conduct with the benefit of hindsight. Oh, hindsight. That's wonderful. I love the, the hindsight. Your conduct is 100%. That's right. The conduct of the agent and the solicitors in their blind obedience to these fraudulent emails. It was interesting reading the judgment that uh, Mr Justice Mossop of the ACT Supreme Court 
had a few comments to make about the conduct, particularly of the lawyers. Not all those comments were totally complimentary. But it was a classic textbook case of failure to verify identity and a blind, and I think you could even say bordering on reckless adherence to the fact that they had an email and it must have been right mm. and it wasn't. But this is an issue that must be coming up more and more, that people from overseas are purchasing properties yes. in Australia and that how do you go about verifying their identity? And, you know, I've had people say, well, you know, can't I Skype them and hold the licence up? <laughs> they hold their driver's licence or identity document up to the screen and, you know, of course... I say, no, that's not exactly the safest way. You know, I mean, how how would you go about verifying identity? It's a Chinese client got in contact with you. I think I'd want to speak to them. I would, I don't think Skype does it. There are standards about confirming identity. There's the model participation rules as a guidance note too about verifying identity. There are embassies and consular offices that people can go to, have their mm. identity confirmed. Mm. I don't think, and I know the question's been posed, but I don't think Skype quite no. does it in terms of what are reasonable steps. Yeah. I mean, I think the third-party identification is really the way to go as exactly. far as overseas. You can send them to a legal firm in their own country yes. or, as you say, an embassy and do the third-party verification and, of course, combined with that, a very safe email system because you are going to be taking most of your instructions probably by email but certainly when it comes to transferring any money in respect of email, I think it is incumbent upon solicitors whether they be in Australia or clients are in Australia or overseas that all the details are double-checked, not only by email but by phone and any other manner that you've got um, possible to do. I think that's an excellent idea, Janice. In fact, if clients are depositing money into your account, have some telephone contact with them mm. as that's happening. Absolutely, yeah. And also if you are sending money to clients, have some telephone contact with them as well. And you can use that telephone conversation and you don't have to be particularly bright or creative to ask a few questions that only the real client would know about the matter or about your firm or about your personal assistant, all mm. sorts of things to give you any hint if there's a fraudster at the other end assuming identity. And often there's um, a hint in the email that if you're busy and you're only reading it quickly, but it'll be the use of a word in an inappropriate way, you know, when somebody's English is a second language or it'll be strange grammar or something like that which may just give you a little, oops, this doesn't sound like my client at the end of it. But anyway, poor Mrs Ansell, she ended mm. up with no property and no money. Well... There was a happy ending because although she had no money, um, courtesy of the agent and her lawyers, she then turned around and sued the ACT, 
under their Land Titles Act, they have an insurance scheme. Yep. Because the fraudster could not be located, the ACT government basically reimbursed her. So she got all her money back. She got loss of rent, legal fees, interest. She wasn't out of pocket. But she, hey. but she had to go to the Supreme Court to do it. I was it. going to say a lot of trouble to go around to do it instead of just having the money exactly. plonked appear in your bank account at the end of the exactly. conveyance. And, and the stress and the time absolutely. and the cost involved in litigation yeah. because the reality is you don't get all your costs back. Yeah. Another case, and as I said, I think we just picked out a few interesting cases here in conveyancing that... Um, have some good risk management messages that I'm sure we don't even have to point them out, Mike. They sort of, they, they just sort of come and jump at you with hindsight. Do you want to tell us about Mrs Galafassi? This is a very interesting case which was played out to a large extent in the media, this case of Galafassi and Kelly. It involved the purchase by the Galafassis of a fairly expensive property in Paddington. Contracts were exchanged on the day of settlement. The solicitor for the Galafassis told the vendor solicitor that, sorry, we don't have any money, we can't settle. That was bad enough. This was a chain reaction of matters the Galafassis were selling, hoped to sell, I'm sorry, their property, I think it was in Bronte, then they were buying Paddington for Mrs Kelly and Mrs Kelly was buying down the road in Vaucluse. So you've got this fairly typical chain reaction of matters. But where it all got a bit murky and messy is that a couple of weeks after the due settlement date, which I think from memory was the 30th of December, that's not a very convenient settlement date in practice, <laughs> there were... A couple of long, detailed, mea culpa type emails from Mrs Galafassi, first of all to Mrs Kelly, the vendor, and then another one to Mrs Kelly's husband. The basal point of those emails was that we love your house and we're very distressed, but we can't buy it because we couldn't sell our property in Bronte and we don't have the money. Something I found interesting in all the emails, and I might say here that Mrs Galafassi is a well-known figure. She's a well-known Australian actor, very concerned about publicity. And she jealously guards her privacy. However, the court found that these emails amounted to repudiation of the contract, enabling the vendor to immediately terminate the contract, which is what they did, and they resold the property for a lower price. The Galafasis bought the property, I think, for $6.345 million. It was resold with the speed of light for about 5.5. At first instance, the Galafassis were liable for the difference and costs and interest mm. and all sorts of things. Then it went to the Court of Appeal. So this has been an avalanche of litigation. So apart from a couple of days in the Supreme Court, we have a couple of days in the Court of Appeal. 
the Court of Appeal reinforced the decision of Justice Windia at first instance. I think the takeaway message from this case is particularly when things are getting a bit tricky. And if you don't settle on the due date, things are bound to get tricky. You are starting to play first grade. Things can go very badly wrong. I think once again, with the benefit of hindsight, it is a good idea to tell your clients right at the start of a matter, whether it's erupting into litigation or not, to have no contact. And that was the issue in this particular matter? Yes, with the vendor. It was the client-client contact. Client, exactly. It was the client-client contact. And the reality is that generally your clients don't have a law degree they don't appreciate the nuances of contract law. They don't appreciate what repudiation is. They don't appreciate what can happen from a few sorrowful emails mm. that, sorry, we cannot buy your property. So I think it's very important. An email is so easy and it's so convenient and it's so quick. And it's so quick. I think it's. I think the thing is you can write a, a letter uh, in longhand or, or even type a letter out uh, and it can give you time to think about it. But it's very easy just to press that button send, isn't it? Isn't it? At any time, Janice, of the day or night. And I must admit I have been caught and I don't think there are many people around that haven't been caught where you've sent the... Um, email to the wrong person. Yes. Um, um, which is can be very embarrassing, but not only embarrassing, it can have hugely legal ramifications. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you have um, got to um, be very, very careful um, in a legal situation about when you press the send button. Exactly. And leave conduct of the matter to the yeah, lawyer. Absolutely. To whom you are paying hopefully good money. Because effectively what happened here is that Mrs Galafassi sabotaged her own matter. I'm not saying the result would have been entirely different, but given the chance to negotiate, given the chance to reach a commercial decision confidentially, that really disappeared in this case. So in my view, they were rogue emails that achieved nothing except a welter of litigation. And when you add up the the damages, the costs, it has been a frightful financial result for the purchase. So I guess the message is really that you do have clients that can be very strong and very forceful and actually want to take part in their own matters. And it's a matter of communication between the solicitor and the client. At least inform your client of the ramifications of it. I mean, they're paying good money for a solicitor to handle their matter and to leave it to you. But Mrs Galafassi certainly put her her foot in it. Janice, I'm with you. Drill them right at the start because you lose control of the matter that yeah. you are trying to run 
for your client. And again, it comes down to communication. It comes down to to speaking with your client and telling them what you expect of them and what they can expect of you and the respective roles in the matter. Very easily missed in today's busy environment. Also very easy to miss with a conveyance in particular. You know, I know it's a cutthroat field. It's a cutthroat field where people cannot charge a lot of money or don't think they can charge a Mm. lot of money with respect to a conveyance. Therefore, they, they don't want to spend a lot of time on it and they tend to do it as a run-of-the-mill matter. And as we know, uh, 99.9% of run-of-the-mill matters go by run-of-the-mill and but there's always that one which comes up to, to kick you in the, in the shins. And as I said, I, c- I can fully appreciate, uh, we have solicitors all the time ringing us saying, you know, it's it, the bread and butter of the solicitor's practice is actually drying up in respect of costs they can charge and also in respect of matters um, since the introduction of licence conveyances. Yes, that's an excellent point. But you still have to be conscious of the fact, of course, that if it goes bad, it really goes bad. Mm. As I said, in these matters, if you don't settle, you're starting to play first grade. Yeah, yeah. No, you you, you can't afford to take shortcuts, even Mm. if you're, you're having to reduce your price or discount your price significantly. You just can't do it. And nor can you afford for your clients to be taking shortcuts <laughs> that really you don't know about. Well, that can be mm. difficult, for instance, if the, the vendor and purchaser may know each other too. Sure. You have those situations. But yes. I think it's up to you to explain to the client, keep out of it, you're paying me good money to do it, let me do my job, and that's the way the way it goes. That's right. Okay. Now I thought... Onward and upward. Would you like to tell us about the Stellard case? And by the way, just to let everybody know out there that all these cases will be available in their full dress so that you can have the opportunity to read them, should you wish. This case, a Queensland case, Queensland Supreme Court, not dissimilar in some ways to the Galafassi and Kelly um, extravaganza. This involved the sale of a service station, a roadhouse somewhere in outback Queensland for about $1.6 million. It involved the sale of real estate and the sale of a business. And the reading the judgment, it was quite murky and Machiavellian in that the vendor was dealing with multiple purchases. There was an estate agent involved. Emails were flying around at a rate of knots negotiating this deal. So there was emails from vendor to agent, agent to purchaser one, emails from vendor, agent, purchaser two. The parties, no solicitors involved at this stage, it's the parties and the agent. And perhaps they had boned up on the law, perhaps they'd read Masters and Cameron, which was a high court case back in the 50s, because they kept using this magic phrase, subject to contract, in their emails. Mm. However, 
the reality is that when you add all the emails up, the court found that they'd agreed on all the essential terms of the contract. Price, deposit, settlement date, lots of other conditions. It's all been decided even though the magic words were subject to contract and due due diligence, I think, yeah. What the court found, however, that the combination of those emails amounted to a binding contract there and then. Mm. And subject to contract only meant that later on they would sign a contract reflecting those matters they'd agreed upon. Mm. Once again, it's a good illustration of the dangers of, and I use the word advisedly, rogue emails. Where this got really complicated and messy and erupted into litigation is that they, the vendor had already entered into a contract with another party. Mm. And this Supreme Court litigation was over a difference of about $50,000. That says a lot about the foibles and the risks of litigation. But the judge said this, and I thought it was a very interesting comment about this email scenario. The casual ease with which emails can be written is their attraction. So that makes them attractive. But, and it's a big but, it's also their danger when they are used for contractual negotiations and why businesses find themselves when they don't want to be, in a binding contract situation. I often often say that it's very easy to use a casual form of language in an email because that's how an email grew up. But as I said earlier on, it's morphed into the primary way people communicate with their business. So if you are sending emails to your client or to the parties on the other side, sending emails in respect of the legal transaction, they should be in suitable language, as you would say, put in a legal letter that you, you know, we previously, you know, often some firms I know have actually put letterheads on their emails to make, to impress upon their staff that this is a, an important letter. It's not just a casual, can we set up a meeting uh, type email. So you've got to be very, very careful. And also to make it very clear, very, very clear that these are still negotiations. I think, I think you have to be almost neurotic about that, yeah. Janice, and subject and to contract doesn't cut doesn't, it. Doesn't cut it, yeah. It's got to be something like um, there will be no contractual relationship between the parties unless and until contracts are signed, formally exchanged and the full deposit paid, something like that. It's also a good idea to say that right at the start and repeat it ad nauseum Yes. <laughs> in every piece of correspondence. So it's crystal clear in words of one syllable. In fact, this case was decided in 2015. There was, in fact, a slew of cases in that year along similar, similar lines. lines. Yeah. There was a case in the West Australian Court of Appeal involving an agreement for lease, same sort of scenario. There was Stellard in the middle of 2015 and there was a case in the New South Wales Court of Appeal called Pavlovic, I think it was, along the same lines. The moral of the story is the courts are quite prepared 
to add up all these emails and get to the equation of a binding contract when some of the parties at least think they're not bound. Mm. It is a real trap and once again a good advertisement for controlling your client, controlling the flow of information and controlling the possibility of being bound when you don't want to be bound. So the email issue is just such a multiple, uh, has multiple heads. I mean, where you've got the the issue with uh, fake emails, uh, somebody hacking your system. You've got the issues with who's sending the emails. You've got the issue with the language that's used within emails. The email issues have become a multifaceted uh, problem. So I think what you've got to do really is educate your staff and also educate yourselves. And some of these cases are fascinating to read. And I know we all don't have the luxury of being able to to sit down and read them. And look, we've only picked, what, three out of a... Yes. I, I, I hasten, to men, I hasten to mention how many there are. But I, I think that what we're trying to get across today is, is the email issue and the changing world of conveyancing that's occurring. With the electronic platform comes its, its own issues, although I must say that um, since the electronic platform has been working, there has been not one claim in respect of it. That's interesting. Yes, yes. And as I said, it, it's all due to the email hacks. The other thing I'd say about emails, and it was very obvious from this Stellard decision, a careful read of, of the judgment, is not only the number of emails, but the speed at which people replied to the emails. Some of the emails covered some quite difficult matters. However, there were replies within minutes. There was this this urge, if you like, by the parties, pretty well everyone concerned, when they got an email to up, reply to it immediately with, I suspect, not a lot of thought. And particularly in these sort of transactions, you've got to think the big picture, you've got to think strategically. It's more than just the detail. And one risk is, I think, replying to an email far too quickly. And it's so easy. Exactly. It is so easy. You get an email in, you think, I'm busy, you read it quickly and you think, I can take care of this issue, boom, 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 press send and it's off your to-do list. So it is, it is a trap that you can fall into that you don't necessarily fall into if you get a letter through the mail in the olden days. Yes. Um, when you got a letter through the mail and you looked at the letter, you may have dictated a response and it was a considered response, whereas these days it is so easy just to send a very unconsidered response. It's a good point, Mike, good that, point. That's the, the critical adjective, yep. the considered response. Absolutely. Now, just to finish up here um, for this particular topic, I'm going to put my insurance hat on just for a minute here, Mike, because one concern that um, has occurred here at Law Cover is that the, given the increasing value of property prices, particularly in Sydney, which have doubled in a decade, in fact, the property that I bought 19 years ago is now worth five times what my, the purchase price. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm doing that to indicate that, you know, property prices, you know, are rising. Mm. 
The uh, primary level of uh, cover on your insurance is $2 million limit of indemnity on the primary layer. And if you are dealing in multi-million mm. dollar property matters, which, as we know, in some suburbs, it's very easy to reach that limit. Also, in particular, a lot of developments. You know, you may be issuing 100 contracts in respect of people purchasing off the plan. Big property issues. I want solicitors to actually have a look at the types of clients they've got, the types of matters, especially conveyancing matters that they're looking at. Are you acting for particularly high net worth individuals? You may consider that you may need further insurance and top up insurance. I'm not trying, I'm not, I haven't got my insurance seller's hat on. I've got my insurance risk manager's hat on because there is nothing, nothing worse than having a claim and having to sit across the table from a solicitor and tell him that the claim is worth much more than $2 million and there may be an uninsured component. And that's the last thing that we want to do. So, again... Not a pleasant conversation. Not pleasant at all. So that's the last thing that, that we want to do. Thank you very much, Mike, for joining you, us here today. And I think that this is a subject which we can probably do many, many, many podcasts on. And so I think we'll continue another day. But for now, thank you. It's very topical. Thanks, Janice. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.